You know, over the past several decades, uh, there's been a lot of emphasis on the idea of self-esteem, especially in those that work with children. There is truth in that in the sense that, you know, what you teach a child about who they are, what they believe about themselves will go a long way in shaping their behavior. So if a child is raised in a very hostile, negative, critical environment where they're told that they're stupid, when they're told that they're going to fail at everything, Oftentimes, more often than not, they will live down to that low view of themselves, even if they are, in reality, very intelligent, very capable. On the other hand, if a child is encouraged and, and believes in themselves, believes in their capacity to succeed, more often than not, they will live up to that high expectation and maximize their ability. But there is one caveat to that. Actually, research is increasingly showing that, um, that the one caveat is that whatever we ha- say to them has to be rooted in truth. And so, you know, you can't, for example, tell a child that, um, that when they fail at something that, well, you're really smart, you really succeeded. No, they know they failed. And, and when we kind of lie to them, they know that and actually has a negative impact. Even to illustrate this, you know, one of the popular themes in several kids' movies that have come out over the past couple years is this idea that, you know, if you believe in yourself and follow your dreams and work hard enough, you can accomplish anything. And, um, and, and we look at that and we say, man, well, that's a wonderful idea. It sounds great. Only it's total garbage. <laughs> uh, now, before you get mad at me, let me just even illustrate that. Let's say I had the dream of being a professional basketball player. Now, would you say that it's true that if I just believed in myself enough, if I did my best, tried my hardest, then I would be able to achieve my every dream? I could make it happen based on on my self-belief. No, the fact of the matter is no matter how much you build up my self-confidence, no matter how hard I try, the fact is that I'm short, I'm slow, I have a two-inch vertical leap, and I'm not very talented. And that's not just what I am now, that's what I was at my prime. And uh, now, now you look at that and you say, it's, it's not just wanting to believe it that makes it true. It has to be rooted in, in the truth about ourselves. It's not just about a positive self-image, but an accurate self-image of the positive traits. Now, I say this because Paul begins the book of Ephesians by, by celebrating. The first whole chapter is about celebrating who we are in Christ, but it's about having an accurate self-image of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But he teaches us that that accurate image is far better, far richer, far more wonderful than anything that we could have imagined. It flows from the relationship that we have with God. In fact, if you look at what he says, he says, we have this relationship. Why? Because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It was a choice rooted in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. He's made us his children. And as he's made us his children, he not only calls us his children, but he makes us holy and blameless before him. And because we are the children of the king of the universe, he blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And this this blessing of this new identity and, and who we are as Christ doesn't stop there. We're told that not only did he adopt us as sons, but that in that adoption, he freed us. What does it say? He says that in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We are made his children, and with that adoption, we're promised an an inheritance that we've obtained, that we've been promised. And And this inheritance isn't just all in the future. It's also a present reality. 
It's not just that one day God will do, it's that actual in reality, God is working in our lives now in such a way that we know that we are predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that he's working everything in our life, even our past and, and our past mistakes, everything redeeming that, bringing good. And in that inheritance, it's not just what we get in the future, but now we're sealed with a promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And there's much more, you know, that's just a summary and we've seen that over the, over the last month. And it's so incredible that Paul ends the chapter by really praying. And his prayer is, I pray that God would give you the ability to believe this, to see it, to, to really live it out. Look what he prays. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That God would show you these things. Not only that God would show you, but that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Not just your mind, the eyes of your hearts so that you would really believe it. That you may know what is the hope which he has called you, what are the riches of his, of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, what's amazing is after going through this whole chapter of celebrating the incredible identity we have in Christ, the blessings we have in Christ, we come to chapter two and it seems to be that Paul takes an unexpected turn. Because he goes from celebrating what we are in Christ to now stepping back and, and reflecting on the dismal state that we were before Christ. How lost and how helpless we naturally are. How desperate we were before coming to faith in Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles open, look with me at Ephesians 2. Look at how he describes our natural state apart from Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, amongst whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, that's a hard-hitting, convicting, and even kind of offensive description. You know, for us it's to say that's who we are from Christ and and, um, and we almost want to run away from that, but we've got to run to it. What's he saying? He said that we were, by nature, we're naturally dead, spiritually dead, unable to respond to, to spiritual stimuli. Now, when he says you're dead in your trespasses, you can't say it strongly. He doesn't say that you were sick and that you needed some help or that we were lost and we needed some direction. No, before Christ, we were dead. And it's not figurative. It's not like we were like being dead. He said, no, you were spiritually dead. It's an absolute statement. And what's he mean? I think what he means is that we were unable to hear God's word. We were unable to respond to his call. Think of it this way. When you think of what does it mean to be alive? Well, life is the ability to respond to stimuli, at least in part. And when we're dead, we know it because you're unable to respond to stimuli. Even as an example, I'm reminded of our first pet-owning experience when uh, with my kids when they were young. You know, when we got married, we didn't have a pet right away, and we resisted when the kids were real young. And finally, when, you know, when our oldest was five, our youngest was three, you know, we got, we got our first pet were goldfish. They were, like, safe. These aren't the goldfish that they were, but they were like this. And, and, uh, and they were so excited. Our kids were excited. Christy, they were a three-year-old. They were hers, so she got to name them, and she gave them the, you know, ultimate three-year-old names. You know, we had Da and Dada, and Cutie Q. And, uh, so she, and, and there was much joy and love in the Ribka household because we had pets. And, 
in, for three days, and then we came down one morning and Dada was floating uh, belly up. And so we replaced him with Dada Jr., and again, a great name, and, but then a few days later, Da was dead, and then we got Kiwi, and we kept replacing, and finally we gave up, you know, and I remember even at one fish funeral, uh, we're sitting there at the toilet, and Christy said, you know, Daddy, am I going to see my fish in heaven? And then she responded, oh, I forgot, we flushed them down the toilet. And so I'm just thinking, in the mind of a three-year-old, you have two spiritual states, heaven and toilet. You know, it's kind of like, a, that might be somewhat accurate. And now, you think about that, how did we know that they were dead? Well, we came down, and they were floating belly up, and they weren't swimming. And when I did something, they didn't respond. Before I'd put food in, they would come and eat the food. I'd put the net in, they'd swim away. Now they just, there no response. There's no stimuli. Um, they just floated there. And what Paul is saying is that spiritually, we were all dead, meaning that we couldn't respond to the spiritual stimuli. We couldn't respond to God's work so that, you know, we read God's word and we just didn't get it. We just, you know, we heard the gospel and it just didn't make sense. And some of you can remember that. Some of you that maybe came to Christ as an adult, you remember times that you would hear somebody, you'd hear the Bible and you'd be like, man, it doesn't make sense. You go to church. Why is anybody excited about this? You were, you're just dead to it. And uh, the gospel had no impact. And it doesn't mean that you didn't have any spiritual interests. Some were churchgoers or, you know, that we are interested in spiritual things. But the things of the Bible we couldn't respond to. And in fact, there may be some here today. You're here, somebody dragged you, or you're out of, out of more, you know, any habit, but you just don't get why some people are really excited about this, why some people are singing and praising. And part of that is it may not just be, okay, try harder. It may be, God, I need you to give me life. That's a life. And naturally, spiritually, we're all dead. We don't get it, except from God's intervention. And not only were we dead spiritually, but part of that being dead spiritually is also that we were controlled or enslaved to several things, several different influences that all work together. Look what he says, in, again, in uh, verses 1 through 3. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, that's number one, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the second influence, and amongst whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh. That's the third influence. So the first one is, when he says the course of this world, that's the wisdom and values of the world system around us. The fact is we all live in the world and we're influenced by the values of our culture, of the society around us, more than we realize. We've got to look at this and see that we live in a world system that really is built without any regard to God. So according to the world system, we're no more than the products of biological chance, of evolution. There is no absolute standard. There is no absolute truth. There is nothing that could guide us. There's no higher purpose. That's the, what the world teaches. And it's, and it's taught not only you know, from the classrooms, it's taught in the media, it's taught in, in everything. That's the value system. And, and it's all pervasive and it impacts our thinking. And apart from Christ, it's something that literally shapes us and empowers us. You know, some have described it even as like a, um, like a fish swimming in water. Does, does a fish swimming in water know that it's wet? No, because that's the water it swims in. That's just, it's, it's natural for it. And in the same way that we swim in the culture, and the fact is we're getting wet by the culture and we don't even realize how it's impacting us. Even as believers, we don't realize it. But as an unbeliever, that's just normal. That's what Paul talks about as believers, that we have to be aware 
that, that of this culture work against it. Look what it says in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world. That's natural force. If we don't do anything because we live in this world, we will be conformed to this world. It will shape us into its mold. But instead, we're called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, by truth. We make the choice of, of fighting against that. So we live in this world, we're shaped by that naturally. Not only that, but we're also impacted by, by Satan and his, and his strategy that he has to distort truth. That's what he talks about in verse two when he says that we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. The Bible teaches there is a real spiritual being referred to as Satan, kind of this leader of, uh, of the demonic influences that a third of the angels followed with him and and he's powerful, but while his power is limited, he still is very powerful, and he's very intelligent. And he uses that power and intelligence to attack us, specifically to try to trap us and enslave us. There's a sense you could look at the world system, and you could say, well, that's impersonal. It's working on us passively, all of that. But at the same time, there's a spiritual power that's involved in there, an enemy, not just in a general sense, but a specific sense, who knows our personal weakness and is attacking us uniquely. Temptation's designed for our own unique weaknesses. And here's what he does. He takes the good things that God has created and he twists them. He distorts them. So we have good desires and good gifts that God has, us, you know, has given us to enjoy, and he distorts them, so we then seek to enjoy those things outside of God's design in a way that is actually now harmful. And he does this in a way that is not forcing us, but it actually then works against our own nature, that, that it literally is something that he's turning our nature against us. And that's what he says when he talks about that we lived according to the passion of our flesh, you see, the problem isn't just external. Yes, we have the world that we live in. We have Satan. But we also have a fallen nature. All of us have a sin nature. That's part of who we are. And we look at that. It's not that Satan ever forces us to sin or the world ever forces us to sin. But what it does is it brings out the worst of that fallen nature. So there's something in us that's drawn towards that sin. Now, we've got to look at this. How does this all work out together? We've got to realize that, okay, if this is the case... You know, it's not just, okay, fighting on the outside and, you know, trying to defend ourselves against these, but we've got to realize that, that God is, needs to change us from the inside out. But we also, in the doing so, seeing how it works, seeing how what happens is that all these things work together so that there's a, Satan destroy, distorts the truth, and in time, that distorts us and our desires, that's what he's talking about when he says in verse 3, that we lived amongst the world system in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we think about that. You know, oftentimes when we think about our desires and temptations, we think just about our body, our physical desires. But he says, no, we're carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. Here's what I want you to see what he's teaching. See, if we think of our temptations as just you know, a physical desire, um, you know, then what we're going to do is we're going to go by self-will, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do it. But it's saying, no, it's something that is in our thoughts as well. It's something attracting to our nature, but it's what we think. It's not just about willpower, it's God's needing to change us from the inside out, changing our thoughts, renewing our mind. Now, uh, if in a sense, if we could almost sum up this idea of what's, what he's teaching here. We have distorted physical desires that flow from distorted desires of our mind, which flow from distorted beliefs about God's truth. 
what happens is Satan takes God's truth, he distorts that, and then, and then he gets it into the world system, and everybody in the world around us affirms that, so we're raised in this culture where that's seen as normal, and because we're raised in that culture where that's seen as normal, that distorts our desires. Let me even try to illustrate that. It might sound kind of um, hard to get. Let me try to illustrate it in a way that will, I promise you this will make sense. We all have desires of our flesh that when we underthink about it, aren't just our physical desires, but they're what we think. Here's the example. If you go to different cultures, different cultures have different desires. Take the example of food. Different cultures have different foods that they find attractive, different things that they think are delicacies. Not because there's different biology. It's not that if you go to you know, Asia or if you go to Africa or different places that they have different biological makeups, so therefore they naturally have different desires. But they are raised in a culture where they believe certain things about certain foods and they find it a delicacy while people in other culture look at the same thing are going to see that same thing as being repulsive. It's because of the culture we're raised in. And we're exposed and develop a taste of certain kinds of things. Okay, so we're getting close to lunchtime. So let me kind of appeal to that hunger that's deep within. And let's talk about some delicacies. And these aren't ordinary, these are special foods. Let's go international, right? So let's say, for example, in Sardinia, Italy, a great delicacy is maggot cheese. Um, now, without getting into much detail, they literally put maggots into the cheese and let them do their work there for a while, which softens it up, and then you eat the cheese with the maggots live in it. Um, that's considered an incredible delicacy. Um, in, in Manamar, they enjoyed fried locusts. Now, these aren't even chocolate covered or anything like that. They're just like this, and that's you find them on the street. It's a great treat that people enjoy crunching on. Um, a new delicacy in Japan, this is actually something that has just apparently developed over the last couple decades, is a real popular thing is fish eyeballs. These are the eyeballs of a, uh, of a tuna. And you know, I, I read that apparently they have the consistency of like a hard-boiled egg, but oh boy, they're, they're, somebody told me they taste really good. I, I, I have that secondhand. Um, I don't want to have it firsthand. Or another delicacy in Korea is live octopus. Now, let me give you a description of someone who tried it for the first time, live octopus. Here's what he write, writes. The experience of eating a live octopus is like going to bat, into battle with your food. Um, the active tentacles wiggle up the chopsticks. They then stick to your teeth and the inside of your mouth. The meat is slightly chewy and crunchy at the same time. The flavor is so fresh and briny, it's like the freshest seafood you've ever had. Yeah, it's alive, you know. <laughs> Am I appealing to you, getting hungry? Okay, one more. Uh, in Hungary, the country of Hungary, they love cooked pig's head. Um, again, now I found an interesting description of this one from a man whose girlfriend tried to introduce him to the delicacy. He wrote, uh, you know, she's cooking. The head was dripping with the jelly-like stuff into a pan and on the floor where there were bits of something else in the pan. There were also about 12 cats that had a ball looking it all up. Uh, so my girlfriend asked me if I wanted some, and I answered, no thanks. She then scooped a big help of the jelly-like stuff for herself and started to eat it. I was almost sick. She had a big smile on her face, and it left a gloss over her lips. And she said she wanted to kiss me, but after that, I couldn't kiss her for a week. Uh, <laughs> now, anybody here getting hungry? You know, this appealing to you? Now, I'm really not 
just trying to do this for the effect. If I wanted to do this, I promise you there were a lot worse examples of this. Um, here's what I want you to realize. There are some people in Korea or Italy or Hungary that hear these descriptions and they would hear the same description, see the same picture, and they would say, I am getting hungry. When's this service getting out? Man, this is great. It appeals to them. It sounds wonderful. Now, what's the difference between the people here that I think most of us are disgusted by the idea of, of, of these foods and the people in these different parts of the world where this is a choice delicacy? You see, it's what we believe about those foods. We don't have different biology. We don't have different taste buds. There's nothing different there. It's different beliefs in different cultures that shape our beliefs. We all have a natural desire to be hungry. We all have natural taste, ability to taste the same. But the culture that we're raised in and the things that we believe about food shape the desires. That's the idea, that if you distort a truth, it leads to distorted desires. Now, let's even take that illustration further. Let's say that there are some diets that subjectively are delicious, but on the other hand, are still objectively really healthy for you. They're good for your physical health. They're good for your emotional well-being. You eat it, you're going to thrive. On the other hand, there's another diet that subjectively, some people say, are delicious. But objectively, it's terrible for you. It's things that were never designed to be food. And you look at that by looking at the, the, you know, at the uh, you know, health perspective of it, you know, it's got poison in it, it's got chemicals, it's going to make you feel sick, it's going to make you emotionally unhealthy, it's, it's, it's terrible for you. Now, what if you lived in a culture where you're raised to desire these things that objectively we know that are really, really bad for you? And you're taught that these things are delicacies and they're the most wonderful things ever. And, and not only that, but the culture then lies about the health effects. And they cover it up and they say, oh, no, it's really good for you. And meanwhile, you see people that are they're physically rotting away because they're eating things that aren't supposed to be food. See, that would be a problem. See, this is exactly what Paul is saying is going on in the spiritual realm. That we live in this world and God has made for us truth. He's, in a sense, given us a menu and he's given us, here's the design that I want to have for your life. And if you take this menu, if you live this life, subjectively, it's delicious. If you learn to live this way, it's wonderful. It will fulfill you. It will satisfy you in every way. But not only that, you'll be healthy because it's what God designed for us to have. But at the same time, if we live in a world where we're told that that, no, those things aren't good, and we're told that, okay, no, it's the, the eyeballs and the locusts, and those are the things that are good. You know, oh, here's maggot cheese. Go ahead and eat the maggots. Because we live in a culture and we're consistently taught that these things are good, it's natural for us to develop a taste for those things. It's something that is in there, and because we have a sin nature, we fall into the lie, and we desire things that are wrong. And here's what we have to realize. You say, well, this is subjective and objective. Well, on some of these things, we're talking about it objectively in God's eyes. He says certain things are disgusting. He says, why? Because these aren't things that are designed to be taken this way. You know, in a sense, he's looking and saying, this isn't food. This is disgusting. This is terrible for you. And God tells us in his word that there are things, that decisions that we'd make that are bad for us, that are disgusting before him. That's what he, how he describes sin. He describes it as repulsive for that reason. But it's not that our hunger itself is wrong. 
It's the fact that we have to realize that we all by nature live in a world that, that is selling us something wrong. Satan is selling us something wrong, distorted truth leading to distorted desires. So many here, we struggle with wrong desires. And let's take even for example, God has given us a hunger for intimate relationship, close relationship. He's given us even a sexual, sexual desire. Those are good things. And in that, he's designed an incredible feast. And the Bible even describes it in those terms of saying, okay, well, here we have marriage and we have a sexual, sexual relationship within a one woman and one man, lifetime commitment within the confines of marriage. It's a wonderful thing. And what's happened is Satan has taken that and he's distorted that truth and then we live in a world where that distorted truth is being sold to us as being normal, where we're told that, you know, that, that sea, you know, you can see slugs and worms and things are healthy, and we're being told that, and suddenly, next thing you know, we have these desires that we feel like they're natural desires, but they're not from God. They're distorted desires that come from distorted truth. That's what Paul is teaching here. And what he says is we've got to realize, okay, we've become enslaved by these things. Well, somebody could come and say, I want the freedom to eat this. Well, again, if I'm looking at it saying, I, you know, boy, I love these, you know, eating this you know, maggot cheese, and man, it's so good, and you find out it's really bad for you, but, but I want the freedom to eat it. Well, if I'm addicted to it and I'm eating something that's killing me, am I, am I showing freedom? No, that's not freedom. I'm addicted and I'm enslaved to something that's harmful. Freedom is the understanding this is harmful and I have the freedom to walk away from it. See, that's how we were spiritually dead because we were caught up into that. We lack the freedom to walk away from these things that are destroying us spiritually. And so what God says is, is that we've got to realize that we've got a problem and this problem is not only the world and it's not only the, it's ultimately how these are playing against our nature. The essential problem is, is not only what we do, it's who we are. Look what Paul says in, in, in verse 3. And we were by nature children of wrath like the lust of mankind. And again, this is harsh. This is offensive to some people. And, because he's not just saying that we deserve God's wrath, that we you know, did bad things and God is going to punish us. He says that we were by nature children of wrath. It's not just our actions. It's, it's our actions showed who we are. It reveals our true character. It's not just our actions, it's our nature. Again, this is offensive but it's what God says, and he says it out of love and compassion, out of goodness. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could have been, or it doesn't mean, it means that we, by nature, we were dead to God's, God's um, stimuli, we're dead to his word, that we couldn't fix ourselves, we couldn't, you know, we didn't need just help, but we ultimately need God's intervention. You see, our greatest, our greatest need, our only hope in the midst of this, if we're, if we're sick, then we need help. If we're, if we're lost, we need direction. If we're dead, we need a miracle. Look at verse 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What we need is God's intervention. We need his miraculous hand. What is our only hope? That's who we were. But God being rich in mercy. But God intervened. And apart from God intervening, apart from God doing a miracle, we have no hope. And what does it say? Being rich in mercy. It's not if you try hard enough, if you're good enough. Basically, it's rich in mercy. What we do is we, God, I'm dead. You know, I can't bring anything to the table than when I'm dead other than my deadness and come to you with my deadness and say, give me what I don't have. And God gives us, again, even with adoption, the child doesn't commit or add anything to the option other than sitting there crying and showing his need. 
And what we, all we do is we say, God, I agree with you, I'm dead, and I need that miracle. And when we come to him, what does it say? That he comes, and when we were dead in our trespasses, he makes us alive to Christ, together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. He gives us life. We were dead. We couldn't fix ourselves, and he makes us alive together with Christ. He gives us a new life. He gives us a new nature. And if you want to know what that is, let's go back to Ephesians 1, because that's a celebration of what he gives us that he forgives us, he redeems us, he chooses us, he adopts us, he makes us holy, he changes our identity, we are now children of the king, we have an inheritance, everything about us has changed. And with that, he gives us the ability to see truth. He gives us the ability to not only you know, be someone different, but to see the truth, to, to, to see the distortion that was there, and instead to see the truth. And part of the truth is understanding what we are saved from. You see, again, you go back and you say, he's just described us, incredible, chapter one, this is who we are in Christ. Why does he go back to this description of who we were? I think there's a couple things. You know, one thing is that when we said that we were dead in our sins, that we are saved by grace. This says something huge to us who, who have a faith in Christ. Because when we fail in some way, how many times have you ever failed and you're like, man, I'm ashamed to go back to God? And I, you know, man, I, you know, God, didn't, God could never accept me. You know, I'm, I'm afraid to come before God. And here we need to remember, remember the state that he found you? I mean, beforehand, who were we? Well, we were dead, that we were children of wrath, that we were slaves. We were, that's who we were. And if that's who we were, then how could we be unlovable to him now? We are saved by faith and we grow in faith, under, or by grace. Do you understand that his acceptance, everything about it is what he does, not what we do. And if you understand that, you realize that even if you've wandered away, even if you've done things that now you look and you say, man, it's horrendous. I can't believe I did that. God could never accept me. God loved you and pursued you when you were dead, when you deserved wrath. And and is there anything that's going to make you unlovable to him now? No. And he calls you to come back into that relationship. And not only that, but he says, I want you to understand what the miracle was for this reason. If you understand who we were beforehand and you you appreciate the miracle that he's done in saving you, if you forget that, sometimes this is a danger of of, if if you're raised in a Christian home or if you never really had a, you know, didn't come out of a rough background or we've been a believer for a long time and we forget the miracle that was done for us to save us and we become less aware of how lost we were and less amazed by the miracle of salvation that God brought. See, the principle is this. The more we aware of our lostness and what God has saved us from, the greater in gratitude we will have in love and response to God's, God's intervention. You want a great picture of that? Real briefly, Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, you have Jesus eating at somebody's house, and you have this woman come to him who's a known sinner, a known prostitute. And you have this, this, you know, this religious leader, this Pharisee who's sitting there and it's, it's his house and he's watching this woman come and come to Jesus and literally cry on his feet, take down her hair, wipe his feet with her hair with perfume. And, and, and he says in verse 39, you know, if Jesus, if you were a prophet, if you knew who this woman was, you wouldn't have anything to do with it. You wouldn't let her touch you, touch you. And look at what Jesus says in response. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, that's the Pharisee, do you see this woman? I entered your house, but you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet her feet with her, my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, is what Jesus is saying here that if you have a really rough background, if you come from prostitution or addiction or something like that, you will love Jesus more than someone who doesn't have that rough background. Is that what he's saying? Is he looking at this Pharisee and says, you know, Simon, you could just never love me like she does because, because she's been forgiven much and you, you, know, you just don't have that background. That's not what he's saying. You know what he's saying? Simon, the difference between this woman and you is that she's aware of how much she has been forgiven and you think you haven't been. What Paul, Paul is teaching us, all of us, we're dead in our trespasses. All of us were enslaved to sin. All of us were, were controlled by the power of the world and of the flesh. And that's who we are naturally. And there isn't a one of us. I look at that and you say, it's amazing that God has saved me. The fact that there's an incredible miracle. And the more that I'm aware of that, the more that I love him. And if I ever forget that, if I ever start to think that maybe, you know, I wasn't that bad before and, and there isn't that great of a miracle. I'm not going to appreciate grace. I'm not going to appreciate how he's changed me. I'm going to think that I'm pretty good and who I am if I realize that I'm nothing in myself. All my identity is not who I was, but who he has made me. You see, it allows me to embrace that new identity. So it's understanding the truth about who I was, what I've been saved from, also then helps me understand the truth of what we are saved to. Because we're saved to. We're not... We're not sick and made a little better. We're not lost and give a little more direction. We were dead and we've been made alive. We've been gone from death to life. And, and you know, and, and that's what he's saying is that we are made alive with Christ. You want to know part of what it means to grow spiritually? It grows to under, means understanding this, understanding how this culture, tra- you know, shapes me, how I don't want to be conformed to the image of this world. You know, looking at the spiritually dead culture and saying, okay, where is that thinking still creeping into me? Where does it impact me? God, make me dead to the culture. Make me alive to you. I want to become more alive to you and to your stimulus. I want to be more alive to your word, to your truth, to your leading of your spirit. What has he done? What does 2 Corinthians Corinthians say? We are new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. We're not who we used to be. We are totally different. And the more that we understand this is who I was, the more I understand my identity now isn't who I was. That's paid for in Christ. It's who, who I am in Christ. That's who I am. This incredible, you know, um, amazing miracle that God has done. The more that I understand, you know, that it not only lowers the impact of the sin that it has in my life because I see, okay, that's not who I was, but, but I'm called as this high calling. And my friends, even as we just close up and we think about this, you know, there may be some that God's been working in your life. There's maybe some that you're like, man, I don't really get this. And, and I, you don't have this relationship with Christ. And you come to ch- church today, somebody brought you. Or, but deep down, God's beginning to show you something. You know, you look at that, you've been eating from the table of the world. And, and while you've found its offerings at times have satisfied you, tasty, the fact is, is it satisfies only for a moment. You come back hungry and, and you look at it, maybe tasty, but you realize, man, it's, it's harmful for my soul. I don't have the relationships I have. I'm not, I'm not happy. I don't have what I need. There's something missing. My friends, I want you to look honestly at that and see that, you know, maybe that's poisoning your soul. Why? Because you've been, we all have, this is who we all are by nature. 
We're spiritually dead. We live in this world that is, that is raising us in certain values and telling us that, you know, that again, that the, you know, the locusts and the pig's heads are great food. And, and before God, it's disgusting. And if God's starting to help you see that, I want to encourage you that even today to cry out and say, God, I see that. I ask you, to, what I need is I need you to make me alive. And I don't want to keep chasing after the lies of the world. I want to see how it's distorted. And God, I want you to not only forgive me, but change me. I don't need you to just help me to be a better person. Change me from the inside out. I need you to transform who I am, to change my thinking, to change everything about me. Because if you change who I am, that changes what I desire. And there may be some here that today is the day that you're crying out and you say, God, I need that. I ask you to forgive me. I, I ask you to, through Jesus Christ, to forgive me and to give me your righteousness, to change me from the inside out. I, I want you to give me that new life. And as you cry out to him, he will. Please, if you do that, if you're thinking about that, please talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about that. But there may be some of us here where we've done that. You, but we need to realize, okay, we've done that. Okay, this is who I was in Christ. Okay, this is who I was, but God has changed me. Okay, understand, okay, this is, don't go back to the old. Understand that's who we were and understand how ugly it is. Understand how disgusting that, that, that diet is before God, how unhealthy it is. And don't get pulled back into it. But say, God, help me to be able to realize and to see the deception, to see the lie, and I don't want to be conformed to the world, but help me to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. God, I need you to change me. And I want you to not only change me, but spur up my, my response to the spiritual truth. God, and that's why we're having the week of prayer. Help you learn how to pray. That's why we're doing the Sunday night, how to study the Bible. Help you learn to understand the Bible more so that you become more alive to these things that God is doing in your life. And the more alive you come and the more that you develop the taste for, for the life, for the, for the feast that he has designed for you. You see, he's going to give you that taste. He's going to give you new desires. Seek after the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You will put new desires in you, the things that he wants you to have, the things that he knows that will fulfill you most fully, the things that will give you the life that you were designed for. He invites each one of us to that today. I hope that you will accept the invitation.